This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 55 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I'm coming to you from the iconic Empire Hotel on the Upper West Side of New York with a very special guest, one of the funniest guys in the world, Aziz Ansari. He's a stand-up comedian who has sold out venues like Madison Square Garden and had comedy specials on Netflix. He played a key character on the long-running NBC series Parks and Rec, He authored the book Modern Romance and Investigation, and most recently he co-created with Alan Yang the Netflix series Master of None, on which he also serves as a writer, occasionally a director, and always as the star, a guy named Dev who is loosely based on himself. Over the course of our conversation, the 33-year-old opens up about the challenges and frustrations of being an Indian actor in today's Hollywood, about the oddities and eccentricities of dating in the 21st century that so fascinate him, about why and how he champions diversity on Master of None to an extent that few other shows ever have, how its parents' episode had a profound impact on so many viewers and on his own family, and on his own real-life relationship with his parents, about his friendship and collaboration with Harris Whittles, the talented comedy writer who passed away of an accidental drug overdose in 2015 after helping to shape the first season of Master of None, and about his plans for the recently announced second season, which he says will be coming to the air sometime around April of 2017. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right, Aziz, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. And I guess to begin with, we always ask, where were you born and raised? I was born in Columbia, South Carolina. 
and I was raised mostly in the town of Bennettsville, South Carolina, where I moved when I was about two. And uh, yeah, I spent most of my childhood in South Carolina. And you have included in your comedy in various forms the fact that it was never lost on you that you were different there, right? Yeah, what's interesting though is I didn't realize how strange a situation it was because it was not like I lived in a place like Atlanta where there was maybe more diversity and then I moved to a place like Bennettsville where I was going to a school with just white kids and I didn't realize how strange it was because I had no frame of reference. It was the only reality I knew, so I didn't realize how strange it was till later in life when I lived in other places. Right, and just for context of people who may not have yet seen Master of None or... Someone hasn't seen Master of None yet? (laughs) Which is inexcusable. Uh, No, but I mean, the reason you were different is that your family was born in India, your parents, and then you were born here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously it's it's been a focus of a lot of your comedy, just the, the things that come with that. But for you, you know, was it something that you dealt with? Were you always aware that things were a little different for you? You kind of forget about it at a certain point. You know, I think if you were standing on the outside looking at this, you'd see this one little brown kid running around all these white kids in the school. But for me, I, I, I'm inside my own head, and it, it didn't seem weird to me. It was the only reality I knew. And, and the kids weren't always making fun of me or anything like that. I didn't have it that bad. You right. know, I've, I've heard much worse stories from other people who are in similar situations. I, I didn't have it that bad, and people were generally pretty nice to me. When did you first realize that you were funny, and when did you first realize that being funny could be something you could why do does, something with? Why does everyone always ask comedians that? When did you first realize well, you were funny? Well, because I think we all, you know, if you're uh, I don't it, remember a particular moment. I, I just, I've always enjoyed making people laugh. You know, I don't remember a specific moment where I had a something click where right. I said, oh, I, I'm funny. But it was all, I, I always enjoyed the feeling of getting a laugh. And I think everyone does. And I don't know if comedians are just insane people that get obsessed with that feeling. Right. Uh, but I, I've always liked to make people laugh and to joke around uh, in social situations. But uh, I'd never had any aspirations to do it professionally and, and didn't think about that until I was in college and I was in New York and I started doing stand-up. You were on a business track, like a NYU business school, right? Yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I got into NYU. I got into the business school. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll start my own business. And I just kind of went in with that attitude. But I didn't know about the whole culture of finance at NYU, at Stern. You know, the kids wanted to get internships at Goldman Sachs and all this intense stuff. I didn't even know what Goldman Sachs was. (laughs) I was just just happy to be in New York and dick around. And it wasn't really my scene. Uh, And I almost transferred out a couple of times to Tisch which is the yeah. film, you know, the art school, or also to Gallatin, which is kind of like the create-your-own-major uh, <laughs> school. But I was too lazy to, to uh, fill out the transfer forms. <laughs> well, you also had to, like, make like a portfolio or something. Right, right. And I was doing stand-up, and I was like, you know what? I remember – this I do remember a moment of – I was in a class in my sophomore year, and they were talking about something, and I just thought it was – I was like, what am I doing here? And then I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something with stand-up. I feel like if I push this hard enough, I can at least tour in comedy clubs as a comedian, and I, and I would have rather done that than any other job I would have gotten. So I kind of just had that attitude, and I kind of just coasted through school without really trying that hard. Still graduated with <laughs> honors, but I didn't really apply myself uh, very much in college because I knew I was going to 
do something with stand up, but I didn't want to have the whole tiff with my parents. Okay, I'm dropping out of school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't want to like drop out of school and then temp all day right. like other friends right. who were comedians. So I was like, well, I'll just stay in school. That seems like a pretty cozy gig. So while you were in school, though, that that was when you did the first stand up. What did that entail? How did you just end up? That going? was just friends telling yeah. me, oh, you're funny. You should try to do stand up one night. And I did one of those new talent nights, and I and I just really enjoyed it. And I have a very obsessive personality. I like getting good at things. And I immediately was like, I want to get good at this. I want to become better at this. And I really didn't foresee any career acting or writing, directing, none of that. I just really enjoyed stand-up and wanted to get good at it. We have had a few stand-ups turn TV folks who have been on the podcast, and there's been sort of a very passionate debate with comedy. So I asked the question, did stand-up come naturally to you? And Amy Schumer basically laughed in my face and said that doesn't come naturally to anybody. Gerard Carmichael said it totally came naturally. He was doing it the first weekend he moved to L.A. And then Louis C.K. was sort of somewhere in the middle. And I wonder for you, is it something that you think you're just, you either have it or you don't? Or, like, what what was your experience? Well, I think everyone, when they start out, is pretty horrible. I think it takes a while to develop the writing and to get really good and... I feel like people say things like, oh, at seven years, I felt like I was okay. You know, at 10 years, yeah. I felt like I was okay. Right. You know, that's how I feel like it's an, a very, very difficult art that I have so much respect for. As far as how it comes naturally, look, you can you can say that I bet most of the people that are comedians, at some point in their life, they had some stories they would tell. And as you told those stories, you would get better at telling them. You would know where the laughs were. You know how to structure those stories. And maybe that's kind of an inclination, like a, a seed of the skill that you build doing stand-up. But stand-up is not necessarily just pure storytelling. It, it, and really good stand-up where you're kind of taking these very, for me, the, the stand-up that I've done that I'm proud of is when I've taken really personal feelings and ideas and, and explored them in a way that's really funny and related to a, a big audience. And that's a hard skill to develop. So I don't think that comes naturally. I think that just comes with years and years and years of experience. Right. So during those first years after college, you're getting more and more into the stand-up, but you're also simultaneously looking at other acting gigs, auditioning for things. Is that right? Well, I started doing stand-up and I pretty quickly started making these short films with the uh, with Rob Hubel, Paul Shear, and this director, Jason Wolner, and we had this sketch group that we called Human Giant, and we did a show for MTV. That happened maybe three, four years after I started. It wasn't right away, but that was kind of my foray into acting. The other acting stuff I got just from being a stand-up was the very, very aggressive, stereotypical Indian stuff. Where, and early on, I was just like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be the guy that does the accents, because I had the fear that if I did that one time, then that was the only thing I would ever get offered, that people would just be like, oh, let's just have him do a funny Indian thing, and I didn't want to get pigeonholed as that guy. So I, that was my fear, and that's why I turned that down. And, and, and again, like I, you know, I say we deal with that in the show, and I say this in the show, I have nothing against anyone that does that. It's just not for me, and I didn't want to do it. These offers were people that knew you for your comedy who wanted you to be in their movie it's for like that when you first get an agent or something yeah. and they're like hey this thing came in for you it'd be perfect for you and it's like what is it <laughs> it's like you're a cab driver right. and you have a thick accent right and then at a certain point i was like you know what just just tell them i don't want to do that stuff right. so don't even bother sending me that stuff anymore right. and so i just didn't get it anymore. and so just for the record did those types of things that you passed on include transformers so the transformers thing i went in for something and then they're like do you want to come in for this other part where you would be doing an accent at a call center. And I was like, 
no. So I didn't audition for it. I never had the part, but I was like, I'm not auditioning for it. But what's funny is the guy that ended up doing the part is my friend, Ravi Patel, who is in the Indians on TV episode That's, with me. That's so great. I yeah, hung I know out Ravi, with him, yeah. and, and we talked about it. I was like, oh, my God, you did that part. Right. That's so crazy. Yeah. Right. Um, and then you've also recently written about how you auditioned for The Social Network and the, the concern that you have, I think, out of that, and even just forgetting about your own experience, is that there are a lot of parts that are in real life or Indian people, but that have been essentially whitewashed for the movies, right? I mean, whether it's The Martian or whatever. So talk about that, because I know that's also graded on you a little bit. Well, that social network example, I said in that piece that I wrote that I auditioned, and I was admittedly bad. Look, when you're starting out acting, if you're a comedian and you start acting, if you don't take any classes, no one tells you like how to audition or how to prepare for things. You just kind of have to figure it out or ask someone or whatever. And I just wasn't any good at auditioning. I didn't know what they were looking for. And I was trying to make it funny and improvise and stuff. And I was like, that's not this kind of movie, you know? And I, I was just bad. I'm not, they should definitely make the right decision. Did you audition for Fincher me. or who were you auditioning for? I think I was just not even, I yeah. did, they didn't let me bother Fincher. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I kind of wish that they dug a little deeper and found an Indian actor to do that part just because there's so few parts for, for Indian people in these, especially in these kind of real life stories. There's so few times where Indian people are around. I mean, all those, you know, amazing Scorsese gangster movies, there's never like one Indian gangster <laughs> that I can like, fingers crossed, maybe right. I'll come in. Like, right. you know, I just read he's doing something, it's called The Irishman. It's like, well, there's nothing. <laughs> not gonna be, not that De Niro is not gonna have a little Indian protege. <laughs> <laughs> so when there is a part for an Indian right. guy yeah. and then you see it go to someone else, it's, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. But at, at the same time, I don't know. I don't know what their casting process is. Maybe they auditioned so many Indian guys they couldn't find anybody. Look, when we were, I wrote about this in the, in the piece I mm -hmm. wrote. When we were casting the part of, of, of uh, Brian in our show, we saw so many Asian guys. We, saw, we, were, we were like a week away from shooting and we hadn't found the guy. We just hadn't found the right guy. And it's not a diss against like the actors. It was, but, you know, when you have a part, you're looking for a certain vibe and a certain look a certain age and it's got to fit you can't just shoehorn in someone just because they're the right ethnicity so we were in a jam and then luckily Calvin Yu auditioned on YouTube like a week before and we I saw it and I called Alan the uh, co-creator of the show and I said I, this guy's really good we got to bring him in and we brought him in and, and and he read with me and he was great but you know, there was guys that we read, maybe they hadn't done enough comedy, they'd just done drama, or they were comedy actors, but they didn't have enough chops, they hadn't done enough stuff, and so it's not always easy, I get it, but I feel like you have to push yourself and really go that extra mile. And then the Ghost in the Shell example, for example, it's like, all right, well, I'd be curious how hard they really tried. <laughs> You know, and I don't buy the argument of, well, there's no one famous. It's like, okay, well, I don't know. They cast non-famous white people, you know, in stuff. Like, the guy that played Thor wasn't, like, a famous baby <laughs> that they, like, picked up. Like, he wasn't famous before. You know, right. Pratt wasn't super famous before he did Guardians, you right. know. I mean, he did Parks and whatever. But they make new white movie stars all the time. Right. 
but they never bothered to try to do that with other people. And in the instance that you were writing about and just referring to, you were saying that what, what really happened was Alan Yang said something to you that made you kind of think about why it was so important. Not that it wasn't something that you understood why it was important, but that hammered it home about, I think it was about how often have you seen an Asian person kiss in a movie? Yeah, Alan asked me that one time. He's like, how many times have you seen an Asian guy kiss someone? Yeah. And I was like, whoa, you never really see that. Yeah. That's strange because there's a billion Asian guys and I'm sure they've had romantic involvement <laughs> with women at some point. Right. And you just don't you don't see it and you realize, wow, that's weird. Yeah. Usually Asian men, Indian men, they're shown as very sexually inept. I it's it's annoying if you're someone like that and know that's not the case. Right. Right. So the first time you and Alan, I believe, crossed paths would have been on Parks and Rec, or was there any crossing before that? That was it? No, we met. Uh, he started writing on Parks and Rec first season. I was acting on it first season. We were both kind of around the same age, both young guys, single. Most of the other people that were on staff in the cast were a little more settled, married, and we were both really into food, as you can probably tell from Master <laughs> and Nun. And uh, we, we just got along well socially, and... You know, at a certain point when we were doing Master None, we, we talked about, like, the idea of doing a show that was 10 episodes and that shot in New York. When we're, we're doing Parks and Rec, yeah. sorry. And then when Parks was winding down, we started talking about it more, and, right. and, and that's what became Master None. Just going backwards, though, for a second, with Parks and Rec, I think, from what I read, you were the first guy hired for the cast. Mm -hmm. What was the outlook for that? Was that a huge deal for you to know that you're going to be in a series that's major network? Big, sure. Big, big, big. I, I just finished. We'd done two seasons of the sketch show, Human Giant, that I'd done yeah. for MTV. They'd offered us a third, and we kind of made the decision that we didn't want to do anymore. I moved to L.A. to try to get more into acting. I did a couple of guest spots on things, some pilots and things like that, and I had this meeting with Mike Schur and Greg Daniels. You know, these guys were running The Office, which was really hot at the mm -hmm. time, and they were like, we're going to do this new show. We don't know what it is. And they're like, we want you to be a part of it. And I was immediately just said yes, because I just put all my faith in them. And it ended up being a great gig. And I got to work with amazing people and, and be on that show for a long time. It was yeah. really great. And as it was winding down, I believe simultaneously the stand-up was really picking up, right? And to the extent it was, it was a simultaneous thing that like Madison Square Garden and stuff would have been while Parks was still in its heyday. The garden was kind of towards the towards end, the end, yeah, uh, of Parks. Yeah. But, yeah, the whole time Parks was on the air, I was doing stand-up and, you know, trying to do bit parts and movies and things like that and would always do work during my hiatuses. I was really itching to do something like what I ended up doing in Master of None. I'd written a couple of scripts that didn't ever get made for good reason. They weren't quite there. You're talking but about film scripts? Film scripts, yeah. yeah. And, and then by the time Master None came around, I'd, I'd gotten better as a writer and, and was more confident and had also kind of developed my viewpoint a little better and was in a place where I was ready to write this show. And how did, how did this concept wind up at Netflix? What was the pitch to these guys? The pitch was kind of, uh, there was a long period between when we pitched the show and to when it actually got made. Because we pitched the show and we thought Parks was going to get canceled. Every year we thought yeah, Parks right. was going to get canceled, right? <laughs> and so one of those years, before the last year, we went around and we pitched the show. And it was kind of like, the pitch was basically like, oh, it's, it's kind of just based on my stand-up. And like we made up a thing of like, oh, well, these would be the characters, blah, blah, blah. But we were basically like, just, this would be a show about my viewpoint and a narrative form of my stand-up uh, ideas. Mm -hmm. 
and everyone was like we're really into this idea but netflix was the most enthusiastic i had a relationship with them from doing stand-up and they just really seemed to believe in us they were they they were like we're going straight to series we're so into this and we're like wow that's that's like such a great show of faith yeah, and yeah. Uh, and i want to work with people that believe in me and so we signed up to do it with them but then we ended up getting picked up for another season of parks but it was 13 episodes and during that time alan and i would meet up and talk about the show a lot and we would just think about what we wanted it to be and we came up with some early ideas and kind of worked a lot before we even had our room and we came up with ideas like the parents episode and i think the cheating episode is called the other man mm-hmm. and we we kind of had loose ideas and as we kept talking more and more the show really evolved and became what it what it is and we've decided to be a little more ambitious with the show as far as the look and everything and we didn't want it to just feel like oh you know another single camera comedy and we really wanted to try to do some different things to make our show stand apart like more like an independent film yeah like we when we met with james ponsold who directed our uh pilot in the third episode we were like we want this to feel like those 70s comedies we were watching a lot of those 70s comedies and we were like wow this is like so different like most of the the single camera comedies had kind of went to this place where everything was so fast and it was like bang 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 right. and, and there's this big trend of just like improvising and it it was getting to the point now I feel like sometimes you watch improv and you're like I know this is being improvised I can see this in a gag reel and it had kind of moved away from what was more prominent in the 70s where it was a little more naturalistic dialogue and yeah things might have been improvised or whatever but everything just kind of felt like real conversations and it was a little bit slower pace it wasn't so choppy and, and cutting back and forth they would do longer takes you know uh so we talking play like things Woody out allen, more masters are, yeah woody allen you know heartbreak kid yeah. elaine may you know how ashby stuff all that and so these were kind of the films we we sided with James Ponzo and he was like I get this we'll figure this out I know why we can do this it sounds cool and he really helped us kind of establish our look and we made the choices to kind of shoot the show and the anamorphic ratio which is kind of that more wider screen yeah. look that has a little more black bar so yeah. it, you have a wider shot it looks a little more cinematic and um, we really wanted the show to look and feel different because there's there's so much fucking TV yeah. out there. You want to do something to stand out. Right. Now, obviously, this is totally its own thing, but there has been a thing over the, let's say, the last 20 years, 30, 30 years, where from Seinfeld to Curb to Louie to Inside Amy Schumer, where there are people that are playing characters named after themselves who are essentially variations of themselves, right? And sure. so I wonder, for people who might be curious, how much of Aziz is in dev. How autobiographical is this? I don't know. I think with the, with everyone that does these shows, I think they would have the same answer. Yes, there's some elements that are autobiographical. There's other elements that are exaggerated, mm-hmm. and, and it, it's, it's a blend, you know? One of the things that people have obviously really remarked upon about this show is the unusual, unfortunately, diversity of the cast and, and the people working on it. Does a show that features, you know, in this case, an Indian actor with an Asian man and a black lesbian as two of his three best friends have that composition because two of your three best friends would be that diverse or because you are actually out to make the point that we should embrace this sort of diversity on television? Like, is it the reason I ask about autobiographical is not whether particularly you've had an exact same kind of relationship or whatever, but is it your objective with the show to, to kind of push that idea on TV that we should be more diverse? I do think we should be more diverse, yeah. and I do think we need more shows with protagonists that aren't straight white guys. 
Uh, no offense to you, um, <laughs> but you've had your share of stories. Right, right, right. Uh, with the cast we have, honestly, I'll tell you how we cast these of them. The Lena character, I think this has been said in interviews, that that was originally written for a straight white woman. It wasn't written for a white woman. It was written for a straight woman. Right. And we read people, white women, we read Asian women. We read it. We didn't have any race specified. And Allison Jones, who was the most amazing, our casting director mm-hmm. for the pilot, had us meet with a bunch of people. One of the first people we met with was Lena Waithe. And she came in. You have these meetings with actors, and you just, everyone kind of has the same story. Like, oh, and then I did UCB classes for a while, <laughs> and then uh, I almost got SNL. And then right. and everyone kind of has their thing. And she came in, told us a story about, like, he was like, she's, I was like, I, she goes, uh, I just had a crazy day. <laughs> We're like, what happened? She was like, well, I've been hanging out with this girl, and, and she's straight, but, you know, I've been getting vibes, and I wasn't sure if it was a turning situation. We're like, what? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? This is this all sounds very interesting. You were right. a fully formed character. Right. She comes in. She's she's dressed like Denise. You know, she's like wearing Jordans and like you're just like I've never seen this on TV. Like this right. is a totally unique, amazing person, and we were just so excited by her. And then when we read together, we had this great chemistry, and we just got along really well. And you know, when you cast these kind of shows, I feel like you have to have that real chemistry or else it feels fake. Look, like you watch some of these movies where they try to have diversity, where there's a couple of white guys and then you're like, would these guys really be hanging out with Ludacris? <laughs> like, would they really be friends with him? You know, I don't know if they'd really be really hanging be out with him. With right, yeah. yeah, like I don't know if this right. friendship is right. real. Like, right. I, I don't know like a group of white guys that has like one black guy that comes in every now and then and like gives them silly advice and runs away and never hangs out right. with them. Right. That dynamic doesn't really play out in real life. Right. But in our show, I think it feels real because it is real, you know. So, so, so there's that's how we connect cast Denise. Then we had um, Kelvin, which was based on the Brian character's based is based on Alan basically, mm-hmm. and so we cast Kelvin for that part. And then Wareheim, that character too. We auditioned, you know, we auditioned a wide range of people, different ethnicities, etc. But Wareheim is a real close friend of mine in real life and we do have a really funny rapport together and there's something very funny about our size difference (laughs) and uh, uh, we're very aware of that and so that's kind of how we had the core group of people but you know once we did the show like I really do feel like there is a responsibility that Alan and I feel to kind of have a diverse cast in the show even beyond the main characters just in the choices we make we try to make the world feel real you know and we make choices like we're trying to cast the agent character for example my agent and you know how many times have you seen an agent character you usually end up you for some reason the kind of stereotypical agent character in any show is like is a white guy it's it's like you know as a a, a, you know like a slick white guy is the type you imagine right you know if you if you read that part on paper you're like all right well that would be like you know x person slick white guy and then at one point me and alan were meeting we're like what about Danielle Brooks from Orange is the New Black? She's so funny. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that agent. I've never seen uh, the African-American woman play the agent. That could be something different. Mm-hmm. And so we cast her, mm-hmm. you know, and we try to, like, keep that in mind. And for me, like, I feel th- like being a minority that's running a show, I feel an obligation to look out for all minorities, not just Asian people, but like everybody. And because and, I know like everyone and I learned this from doing the show too. like every person has 
their version of the cab driver thing that I have. You know, I've talked to black women who've told me like, oh yeah, you know, my thing is I go into auditions and people will be like, can you kind of like black it up a little? Like, you know, people, everyone has their version yeah, yeah. of this thing. So when you have these good parts, it's like, all right, well, is there someone we can give this to uh, that might not normally get this opportunity to do this kind of part, you know? And we try to keep our show feeling diverse and feeling real because look the show takes place in new york city you know right. and it should be diverse because this is a very diverse city does it frustrate you though that despite obviously you're very conscious about the importance of this and that more than most about making efforts to include diversity in your show and yet you you can't it's like you can never please everybody i see there are people that are giving you a hard time that because many of devs love interests most of, i think virtually all of them have been white women and they say you know that's unacceptable does that do you see merit in that well i had one love interest for like eight episodes right, it's right, noel right, like right, the right, whole right, time right, right. and then um you know another person was claire danes who's right. like a legend <laughs> right right uh but look i i totally see that point look there's not a lot of women of color that are love interests and stuff you know, and and look, we'll, we're going to do something about that in season two. In season one, I had this one love interest for eight episodes. Right. So I feel like it's a little bit harsh. To, yeah, uh, to. You know, <laughs> look, at one point, there's an episode, ladies and gentlemen, that that character, Diana, who's played by Condola Rashad, African-American woman, that was going to be a, a love interest in that episode. But then we moved the episode order around and I already had a girlfriend, so we couldn't do that. I, look, I totally see the point. It, it kind of hurts me if people say like, oh, like I've, you know, to say that I have something against women of color or like that I wouldn't do it or that I have this, you know, a fetish or something <laughs> like that hurts me because I don't sure. think that that's not true at all. But I see, look, there's not enough. I 100% agree. There's, you look at every movie poster. Look, I was, we, when I walk to work every day, I always see a poster for it's one of those and there's a new one every like six months one of those nicholas sparks movies <laughs> and it's two white people that right. are like staring at each other right, right. and it's like there, there's not one minority you could throw in there just just i mean you really don't give a right, fuck right. it's like there's been like 10 of these movies there are right. minorities yeah. that fall in love with people yeah. And every single poster <laughs> it's like two white people that are gazing into to right. each other's eyes and it's like why isn't one of those women a black woman or Asian woman? Why is the guy always a white guy? Can't right. one, one can't one of those guys be an Asian guy or a black guy? Would it be so crazy? Right. Would it be so crazy? Right. Would people just be just so they wouldn't know what to make of it? Yeah. yeah. Now, dating and courtship rituals and all this stuff. This has been an interest of yours that predates Master of None, right? I mean, this in terms of not only comedy but even your first book that you've written. Yeah, I mean, that book definitely had a lot of ideas that we used in the show, whether it be in The Other Man, which was kind of the cheating episode, mm -hmm. the hot ticket episode with that kind of dealt with the culture and etiquette of texting, etc. Mm -hmm. And that book definitely We should say us. for the record, Modern Romance and Investigation. This oh, is yeah. available no, on Amazon. Do <laughs> don't do that. You don't have to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, that was yeah. Definitely, uh, definitely a nice thing. So it's thing just always been on. a thing that's interested you. Because well, you there's... know what's great about that book is I just talked to so many people yeah. and I learned about their experiences. And even in ways you wouldn't expect, for example, the episode called Old People, that was really inspired by all of these conversations I had with older women in retirement homes when we were working on the book. And I told Alan and the writers about it and we, were, we thought, oh, this could be an interesting episode. But the reason you were even interested to go out and do that investigation for the book was that you found in your own experience that dating today 
has a lot of absurdity about it versus other times? Well, what I realized was I would do stand-up about this stuff, and I would realize these things that are very personal, you know, sitting, everyone's just kind of staring at their phones, staring in these screens, and they have all this drama in their phones, and it feels like it's so unique to you and so personal to you, but everyone is going through that nonsense. And that's that was kind of the sentiment that I wanted the book and parts of the show to convey is that we're all in the same boat. We're all dealing with the same shit, right. you know? Just for the record, why is the show called Master of None? What does oh, that mean? In other by words? the way, I was telling Alan this earlier today. Yeah. I was at a restaurant on Friday, and this guy, uh, guy comes up to me. He goes, hey, you're on that show, right? Guy who don't know nothing? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? That's the greatest... <laughs> greatest <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome <laughs> that's the greatest mistake i've ever heard yeah that's fantastic because <laughs> usually i get masters of yeah none. people right. say you're on masters of none uh, master of none yeah uh but this guy, guy i don't know nothing right. yeah it's crazy it was, it was so good titles are hard we spent forever we couldn't figure out a title and then at one point i i i, I had the master of none on a list, and and I asked Alan, I was like, "What about master of none?" He's like, "I like it." But what? It, but is that is it from Jack of all trades, master of none? Is that the, f- the phrase that you pull it from, or what does it mean? We just thought it sounded cool. I yeah. mean, that phrase exists, yeah. and there's also that song we used in episode right. three. I just thought it it just it just kind of looks good and it sounds good, yeah. and you can't overthink those things. Right. And and it does kind of fit thematically, you know. Like it's it's the character's very curious and trying to learn about things and. Whatever, yeah, but. the thing that I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the episode that seems to have resonated the most with people of of all of them is parents, right? Sure. And th- what people may or may not know is that these are actually your parents that are playing your parents, and they're really great in it. Oh, thank and, you. And uh, I just want to ask you, you know, what was it intended always that they would be in the show, and what did you make of the experience of working with them? Wasn't intended that they would be in the show. We auditioned people, real actors, to play those parts, and no one felt right. They f- there was a couple people we brought in where the guy came in, one guy came in for my dad, we read the scene, and I was like, but dad, blah, 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 and he was like, my son, blah, 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 and then at the end, he's like, anyway, thanks for seeing me, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> you, you're doing an accent. It felt like you. It felt like this guy was making fun of my dad, right, and, and right. It, it felt like someone doing an impression of right, my parents, right. and so at a certain point, I talked to Alan and I said, look, these characters are very important. And this is something we were very sensitive about. The portrayal of these immigrant parents. A lot of times when you see immigrant parents on television shows, they're very broad. They're doing very crazy, hacky, ethnic jokes. It's like, you know, he's the dad was like, oh, I'm, I can't find my keys. I've got a tandoori chicken in my pocket or something. It's just nonsense. Yeah. And so we really wanted to make these characters feel real, like real immigrant parents. And Alan knows my parents. He'd met them a few times. Knows my dad. My dad is pretty much like the guy in the show. Right. He's he, he's probably dialed down a little right. bit in the show. He's a pretty silly person. Right, right. And so Alan knew he was funny. And I remember I, I asked him. He really wanted to act. He wanted to be in parks. He had this desire to do it and just felt so confident he could do it. And then I remember he came to New York. I was like, all right, we're going to have to like audition you because... It's a it's a big part. Yeah. It's not like a quick cameo. It's it's a lot. Several episodes. Yeah, season three up? episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, well, you have to read with me, and we had to film it and make sure that everyone's cool with it. And he was like, okay. And the first thing we read together, I just practiced with him in my apartment. And the first thing was that thing where his iPad's not working. And he's just walking around. He's like, shit, <laughs> shit. And he just started, and he just goes, shit, shit, 
shit. And I texted Alan, I was like, he's already a thousand times funnier than everyone that's read for this. <laughs> and uh, he's just very uniquely funny. Yeah. And my mom, I think what you get from her is she's just very natural and very real. And that's how, you know, so many people have come up to me and been like, those parents feel so real. That's exactly how my parents are. That same, there's the same, these little weird quirks that you can't really fake. No. And that's kind of the advantage of working with non-actors is sometimes you get these very real natural performances that you just can't get. As long as you can get them to kind of turn off and, and just kind of be themselves, you can get that kind of performance. And the challenge was getting them to do that. And it was hard, but they picked it up. You know, my dad did a few, so he picked up pretty fast. And my mom was just very natural. And when she wasn't like getting angry at me just about being in the show, because uh, <laughs> My mom does not like acting at all. Yeah, already in season two, she's like, that character's on vacation, like she's not around, like she's sick, whatever you yeah. want to say, but I'm not, I'm not wow. coming back. <laughs> wow. Meanwhile, my dad's like, let me pitch you some ideas. <laughs> what about we do a whole episode about No, you me? can tell he's a character, even just from like the Colbert appearance and all of that. I mean, so I guess the question that I have, the other question about that uh, just parents episode is, why do you think it is, I mean, I get it, but why do you think it is that this episode has had such a resonance with so many people of so many different backgrounds, and and why has it meant as much to you as I get the sense that it's meant? I was walking around with Alan one day, and we were walking around New York, and I saw like a street vendor guy, and I was like, man, like just thinking about anyone that's here from a different country, they had a pretty crazy journey. And then Alan told me the story of his dad, which is the Peter character story mm -hmm. about how his dad lived in a hut, had to kill the chicken. You know, his dad lived in a dirt hut in Taiwan in a village called Tiger Tail. And then here's me and Alan walking around <laughs> New York trying to come up with ideas for a comedy show. That's yeah. one generation right. difference, right? That's pretty crazy. And so me and Alan were just talking about this, and then we were just like, every parent's story is, must be insane. And right. we, we never really realize it or think about it. And then I started talking to my parents about their story, and I didn't know this stuff. I didn't know a lot of it. Because the other issue that we address in the episode is that the parents are kind of closed off a lot of times and don't share this stuff. But I think the reason that episode resonated is just so many people have these experiences, these stories, have parents that have gone through all these hardships. Even if you're not an immigrant, your parent, you have parents and you have this strange relationship with them. They probably made sacrifices for you that you don't realize and if, you, if, you're, if you're lucky enough to have nice parents. And I think that's why the episode resonated, especially with people that are uh, children of immigrants, but also just... I've had people come up to me and say, like, hey, I'm white, but, you know, the parents episode, it, it, it hit home. Yeah. No, I, and I think it's actually interesting also that there's been a wave. I don't know. If it's I guess you got to assume it's coincidental, but maybe it's a certain generation that's coming of age now whose parents were immigrants who are now the first generation co coming to the point where they can be creative people like you, where this year alone we had not only Master of None, but also Meet the Patels, which was essentially about intergenerational 
you know, dynamics and also Sanjay's super team, this animated short that was nominated for the Oscar. And it's slowly changing. Yeah. I mean, it's still moving at a snail's pace. Yeah. Every other story that you didn't mention. Yes. Right. Show short movie was probably about white people. That's, no, I, I, don't, I don't even mean about it. I'm just saying about the, just the, the cultural yeah, ideas yeah, being yeah, explored. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you have more people that are entering this field that are uh, from different backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think the first person, Indian person I saw on MTV was me. <laughs> and uh, it's it you know I don't remember seeing any Indian people right. on anything when I was growing up except for these the cab driver parts or you know as yeah. the, you know that montage that it's in the beginning of the Indians on TV episode was the times I remember seeing Indian people on television. So yeah, I think things are slowly changing, but I I am very hesitant to say that things are are, yeah, are yeah. really changing because yeah. I still feel like it's uh, overwhelmingly uh, a different thing. But yeah, I think. My main takeaway from that, though, from that episode, Indians on TV, is I feel like I, I have to give Netflix credit because I feel like other people could have read those scripts and thought, I don't know if this really will relate to a mainstream audience, which is just coded speak for I don't think white people will understand this or care. <laughs> and it's so it's, it's bullshit because everyone's seen stories about middle-aged white guys and their problems that's every story i mean every classic movie is just you know right. you but you you relate to it when they're good stories and whatever right. and uh, you know i i always said like look like don't tell me you can't relate to x person of x gender or x ethnicity or whatever and their struggles like we watch 3d animated movies about fish uh, <laughs> you know and those are good movies right, you know right, it's, it's right. about writing it's about storytelling uh, and if all those things are in place, you, you, everyone has a compelling story, you know? So speaking about writing, tell us about your writer's room on Master of None. How many people are in there, and who are they? Season one or season two? Give us both. Yeah. Both. Um, season one, we had— um, I mean, you don't have to name them all, but yeah. I'm just saying, like, well, what, look, what the, kind the, of a group is it? The kind of group we tried to foster yeah. was—I I was really inspired by— when I went to the Parks and Rec room, I saw— a wide range of people, different. Uh, I, I saw a mix of gender, age, ethnicity. Like Mike Schur really had a diverse room of people, and it wasn't just one type of person. It wasn't like oh, just a bunch of guys that rode on the Harvard Lampoon or something like that. Right. And so Alan and I, in our hiring, we try to get people that are from different backgrounds, different ages, ethnicities, and and have that diverse uh, room because it helps us write the show better. You know, we also. You know, they're not officially writers on the show, but we really take the input of our cast and, and try to incorporate that. Because, look, I've been an actor where I wasn't a writer on stuff, and I've appreciated it when I've been asked to help craft a character or a scene. I think back to this quote that I heard from Lee Daniels on one of these kind of things where he was talking about white writers writing for black actors and how it's insulting. And I was like, I, I, that really makes sense to me. Like, I feel insulted when sometimes if you're someone else is writing stuff for you and you're a different person it it doesn't sound right it doesn't feel right and right. and they've taken liberties with who they think you are and I never want to do that to anyone mm -hmm. and and so you know like whenever we work on scenes with Lena like I, I really work with her and we rehearse a lot and change stuff a lot and um, you know me and Noel Wells we rehearsed a lot of our scenes together and did a lot of improvising and stuff to kind of really craft the, these scripts and, and really tailor so them to the actors. you say improvising, just for, so people have the correct understanding, so I have the correct understanding. You may, in rehearsals or whatever, improvise and get it, but ultimately what we're seeing, the film version, is not 
something being made up on the fly. It's no, that, there's, there's is both. It, is Look, it? we'll rehearse for a long time, and yeah. I'll record things on the, my phone and, yeah. and use that to help me rewrite stuff. Um, and uh, then when we're on set, like there's a moment in the Nashville episode where where the bit is that I'm trying to scare her about a goat. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's too hard to explain this bit if you haven't yeah, seen yeah, it. Yeah. But uh, but the ending of that scene, Noel improvised, and it was really funny. And we we left we used that take right. where she improvised a crying baby right. noise. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry if you haven't seen that <laughs> and none of this made any sense. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was improvised. There's there's plenty of improvised moments. We're not like against right, improv right, right. or anything. But you know the improv I'm talking about, yeah. where it's like you can see. Yeah. You can see what's happening. Right. We try to avoid that, try to make it feel natural. I've got to ask you about one writer who I don't know if he actually ever wrote for the series specifically, but I think you guys were very close collaborators and he's somebody that you've dedicated. You trying to get me to cry on no, your podcast, man? No, no, no. I just want to, because uh. it sounds like it's somebody that really, you shaped each other's sensibility. And this is Harris Whittles, who passed away, what, about a year ago? It was uh, February of last year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was the best. I mean, he was in the room. Uh, he was in the room pretty much the whole time for season one. He passed towards the end of the writing period for season one. So his his writing is in a lot of the episodes. Uh, a lot of his jokes are in there. I, I mean, I've, I've went over them in other interviews mm-hmm. and things, but like the dominoes scene, little lines, like he's the one that came up with like Arnold saying, you got to text her a, a picture of a turtle coming out of a briefcase. And uh, it, it's moments like that where you're like, wow, like what a talent. Like no one's going to pitch that. No one else is going to pitch like turtle in a briefcase. Because it's just <laughs> turtle coming out of a briefcase. It's so crazy. It's so funny. So what so made him great? It was just like an outside the box kind he, of thinking? Yes. Like you would have a joke and you'd be like, Harris, can you make this funnier? And he'd be like, just say this. And it would be so funny. Right. And, uh, you know, it's one of the last memories I have of him is sitting in the room and we're like, you know, everyone's tired, and we're like, oh, can you, what, what is this, like, we need to rewrite this, this isn't funny enough, and, and, I, and I was just like, Harris, <laughs> say something, make this funnier, and he said something really funny, and we just put it in, you know, right. when you have a script that's done, you, you, you know, you'll sit with the whole room, and, and you'll do a punch-up session where you try to, any jokes that feel kind of soft, you try to beat them, and everyone goes around pitching, and would say stuff, and then Harris would just say something just unbelievably funny, <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's hard. You know, we've been writing this season, and um, I i mean, even when I'm not writing the show, I think about him every day, and uh, um, it's hard. It, you, you know, I, I miss his energy in the room. You, you know, he... Because you knew each other for years before this, we, right? We knew each other from parks. We worked on a couple of movie scripts together. Uh, we didn't hang out socially all the time, but we always knew each other, and we're always friendly with each other, but he was one of those people who were like, we got along, and we were always like, oh, we should hang out more, and we just wouldn't, you know? Yeah. But then when we worked on the show, we were around each other every day, and it's, it's hard writing this show now without him. Uh, you miss his presence, you know? I, he, we had such a funny dynamic, because he was like, kind of like a restless child that was like so talented, and, I, and he would make me turn to kind of a mom character, <laughs> and uh, I'd, I'd, I'd have to try, to try to like keep him under control, um, and he was just so good. Uh, you know, ugh. I mean, we'll, we'll sit in the writer's room sometimes, and I'm just like, gosh, if Harris was here, he would just come up with the funniest <laughs> idea right now. He would really have the best idea for this scene or whatever. And, you know, I still keep in touch with his mom and his sister and email them. And uh, it's hard. It's such yeah. a sad situation. I yeah. mean, he, he was the best, and he meant so much to Alan and I and, yeah. and the show. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for the time we had together and that he was able to work on us, uh, work with us in, on the first season. All right. Very sorry. Uh the other thing I want to ask you about, because I think it 
distinguishes your show from a lot of others is that you do have people like James Ponsell and Lynn Shelton mm-hmm. and people like these are people that make great independent movies that are working for you on on directing episodes and I just wonder how that comes to be is it important to you because of the the way you want the show to look or to feel or whatever that you get these really indie standouts to come work and direct for you well I think sometimes with a singer camera TV directors come in and and they're just kind of there to go through the motions and the show is already so set that they don't really get to feel like they're putting their stamp on mm-hmm. it. And we wanted the directors to feel like they were getting to do something cool and could could have a little more leeway to experiment and to do interesting things. And also it was the first season, we were trying to figure everything out. Yeah. We met with James, he really just seemed to get what we were trying to do. And then once James did a few, we had the idea of Lynn and she was fantastic. And then Eric Werheim yeah. did four episodes, he was great, and then I did, um, yeah the parents of Nashville one at the end. And I I think what's cool is that everyone's style kind of, it does nothing feels like a a crazy uh, departure. It all feels like it's, you know, one cohesive thing, but it's still like a cool style where if you're directing your episode, you can still put your stamp on it and make choices to make it feel like your episode, you know? Can you share about season two of who's come in and worked with you on directing season two? Oh, we're just writing now. So it's we, not, we start okay, shooting it's not in, shooting yet. We shoot, start shooting in, uh, in the fall, okay. and then it'll be out. And then April, you line so. those people up closer to the to the start time? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it'll be similar to last year. You know, Eric, myself, Alan will direct some this year, too. And, um, yeah, we're excited. Guest actors are hit or miss sometimes. You guys have had some terrific ones, and especially, I think, Claire Danes, who she we mentioned earlier. It's like fantastic. unbelievable, right? Yeah, she was great. What, how did that come about? And, and we don't really associate her normally with comedy. It doesn't mean that she, obviously she can do it, but like, how did that come about? We had that part, and we knew, like, oh, this is a good part that we could get someone cool to do. Right. It was a big part, and it's a fun part. And I think our goal with some of our casting is, you know, sometimes you tend to see the same people in a lot of things, and we were trying to, like, push ourselves, like, who's someone we haven't seen do something like this? And that can be hard, you know, certain people are really good and then they just keep doing some of the stuff uh, and are in these kind of different shows and you know them and I'd seen Claire Danes at some we knew each other socially and I saw her at some some something in LA and we were hanging out and I just remember she was just like funny and like I was like oh you know we have a good rapport I bet she could be fun I bet we'd have fun acting together and so I pitched that idea to Alan he's like yeah she'd be great like she's never done comedy that could be cool it'd be something new and so I emailed her, and I was like, would you ever want to do any comedy thing with us? We're working on the show. And she was like, oh, my God, this is so crazy. I was just watching your stand-up <laughs> special. It's so weird. You're emailing me. Also, I'd love to do comedy. It's something I've really wanted to do, and I haven't gotten a chance to do it. And then we sent her the script, and she was like, this is funny. I'm in. And she did it and was so great. Yeah. And, um you know, I, I think she was great. Noah Emmerich was fantastic. I do his work from the Americans. And, I think one know. of the funniest lines in the show is, you're cheating on me with a little Indian guy, and then you, you don't have to bring up my ethnicity or my size. <laughs> I think it's great. Um, no, but that was that was terrific. And I guess everything about season one, right up to the, the way that it ends, which I think most people wouldn't have necessarily predicted where mm-hmm. the directions the characters take. And I just wonder for you what it has what it's meant to you when with with Netflix it all goes out at once and mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna get love or hate or whatever pretty quickly and for you guys you got immediately it seems like great response from critics you know won the best comedy series critics choice award made the AFI's list of the top 10 TV shows of the year 
won this Peabody. I mean, it's a pretty terrific reception. And so what, how gratifying was that for you to just see that this labor of love was really received well? That weekend the show came out, it was so crazy because at that point, I'd finished editing the show a while ago with Alan and we'd put it to bed and there was there's kind of this, there's this period of time where you're just kind of waiting for the show to come out and part of it is, you know, they're doing all the kind of technical delivery things and putting it in all these different languages and all these times. So, so some time had passed from when we finished and then it was November 4th or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And then it came out that weekend, and I was like, oh, my God, like, people are going to see it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> right. and, uh, and everyone watched it that weekend, and then we started seeing the reviews, and we were blown away. I mean, uh, it was so crazy for us. You know, you make this show that's very personal, you work so hard on, and you hope people like it. I thought it was good. I thought people, I thought people would like it. I didn't think it would get the response that it did. It was, it was just uh, the nicest surprise. And, uh, it was it was hard that weekend. Like that whole weekend, I was thinking about Harris the whole time, and it's like, I don't know. I wish you could have seen mm-hmm. uh, any of this, and and it was just it was so hard, like seeing people like quote his jokes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so it was just like it was like this weird weekend of like ups and downs right. and being elated and then being like so sad that my friend wasn't there yeah. for, for this. But how has your experience just? guy on the street now you say you walk to work and all that like how has your it's not like you were unknown before you're selling mm-hmm. out madison square garden but has it changed the way that joe schmo interacts with you you know they feel like you're their their friend now or what it, what's been the way that it's impacted that um I, you know people when they stop me now it's mo- it's master of none is yeah. the thing they they stop me for yeah uh, i don't get as much saying stuff from when you're a comedian people just yell stuff at you um, <laughs> what do you get the most you know it's weird in master of none there's not like a phrase people yell right, at me right no one like yeah i that's actually kind of good i think yeah because you know everyone you, you you when you do these things when you're a comedian you're like oh i think this might be a thing people might yell right, at me right. you know <laughs> like when we did the treat yourself episode of parks right i told red i was like you know people are going to yell treat yourself at you for a long time. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's going to become a problem. That's right. Oh, my <laughs> it's gosh. A very silly, not even a problem. It's a lovely thing when people like right. comedy have done. <laughs> but it is interesting that Master of None, there's no, like, phrase people yell. Right. But, yeah, people know Master of None. They get a lot of, you know, people coming up to me, mentioning episodes that they connected with. Yep. You know, a lot of people mention Parents episode or um, the Mornings episode. But yep. A few people will stop me on about Mornings episode. Like, man. Or, like, the, the finale, like, I watched that with my girlfriend. Yeah. I got a little intense, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or like right. the morning's episode of like, uh, you know, women like me and my boyfriend went through that <laughs> shit, you know, and, and that, that makes me feel great. Cause right. you know, a lot of that stuff is, is very personal to me. Right. And when, you know, th- to me, that's the, the funnest part of comedy. When you take these things that are very personal and you realize like everyone, uh, everyone feels those things at different times and can relate to them. And you just feel like a little less alone in the world. So there was, there was some, uncertainty about whether or not or when season two would happen and then uh we recently learned that it is which is very exciting Mm -hmm. but basically you have the larry and louie approach which is that we're not going to just do it to fit a time slot or timetable we're going to do it when we have something to share with you is that basically yeah i and i gotta give uh many thanks to netflix for being understanding of that you know i i done you know this arena stand-up tour i written this book and then I did the show all back to back it was a lot of stuff yeah. it was a, a lot of ideas to pour out of my head and and luckily a lot of them kind of help fuel each of those products kind of help fuel the other one yeah, in weird yeah, ways. yeah. 
and there's definitely some ideas that kind of are themes throughout all of them or whatever. But I, I, I was just felt tapped, and I, I needed to, to be a person for a while and yeah. have some stuff happen to me right. in order to write and, and in order to uh, have ideas. So I didn't want to turn the show into a machine that just immediately starts writing. I don't know how people do that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I also think our show is a little different. It's not, it's not like an ensemble show where it could be like, well, what if this character, you know, gets a pet dog that blah 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 blah. <laughs> you know, the show's really driven by the ideas and so it's just really it's it's kind of just we just needed some time to kind of breathe a little bit and right. to kind of recharge and yeah, I think it's like you said, the same model as Larry David, Louie, whoever, uh, just giving it the appropriate amount of time to, to, to make something good. Because ultimately like I I do this to make stuff that I'm really excited about and that I'm proud of. And I I, I don't do it just, you know, I'm okay money-wise. I don't, I don't want to rush things, right. and I'd rather just make something I'm really proud of. So this next season, you would guess, would be on the air when probably? I think it's going to be in April next year. April next year, okay. Yeah, it takes a long time yeah. to, to make the show <laughs> because we write everything up top, and then you know, me and Alan are just very involved with every state, so there's, it, it just takes a long time to get sure. it all done. But I, I'm excited about what we've been working on so far, and I, I think people That's great. will really can't wait. Um, well, last question is just do you have at this point – any unfulfilled ambitions that are specific things that you've wanted to do that you haven't done yet? I mean, it's obviously it seems like a, a pretty major one would have been to have your own series that you're co-creating, you're starring in, you're sure. writing. You know, again, done your book, done selling out big places. So what is there that you haven't done that we should look for you one of these days to maybe try to do? I definitely want to do a feature at some point. I still haven't done that properly. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to do that. I would love to to have season two of Master of None go over well. I'm it, it's kind of a it's kind of hard because season one it's not a high bar. <laughs> it's it, you know people responded to it as well right. as you could hope right. people could respond right. to it. Things so it you know it <laughs> there's no way we want to have a disappointing second right. season. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like we've got a lot of I feel like we've got a lot of great ideas. So I'm excited for that. I hope we can execute that. We have a lot of we have a lot of ambitious ideas that are gonna be hard to pull off. I hope we pull those off. Mm-hmm. I, and I hope um, at some point I can do a few features that, you know, have my voice and explore different ideas and worlds, you know, not just kind of this uh, kind of guy in his 30s figuring his life out stuff and, you know, try different stories and, you know, really just push myself to just have a long career full of interesting stuff I'm proud of. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus